Man, that was great. Wow. I just feel like going home now. I mean, there's nothing else to say after that. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn over to Proverbs chapter 8. And uh, for those of you that may be visiting today or first time uh, being with us, we're going through a verse-by-verse study of the book of Proverbs. And we have made it all the way up to Proverbs chapter 8. And uh, we're uh, coming through it every week, kind of looking at it and taking it apart and getting all the principles out of it, gleaning everything out that we can. We know that the book of Proverbs is probably the key Bible book uh, in all of the Bible. It contains the wisdom of God. I, I've said for many, many years, and I still believe it, that uh, everything else in the Bible, I think, probably threads its way back to the principles in Proverbs. And uh, today, we're going to get into Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. And uh, without a doubt, there's no question about it, Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31 is the deepest place in all of the Bible. I don't know of another passage of Scripture, another book of the Bible, that has the depth or carries the context of the depth uh, that this passage does. And I want today, uh, in our message... Uh, I want this to be uh, basically an introduction to this great passage. There's some things here over the next couple of weeks that I really want you to see and learn. Uh, You know, at some point in your life, when you go to church, and I know people go to churches for all kinds of reasons, but at some point in your life, you have to come to terms with the the question in your own life, do you really want to learn the Bible? I mean, that comes down to it. I mean, a lot of Christians, they just want the surface stuff of the Bible. You know, they just want the, the milk, the cream. They, they, they don't want to really study the Bible. And, and that's fine if that's what you want to do. But uh, if you're ever going to be productive in what God wants you to do, then you're going to have to learn the Bible. And, you know, this church is about learning the Bible. Uh, we kind of blend it around where there's things that we give you that are very, you know, basic and uh, help you with the basic instructions. We try to, as Paul said, teach the whole counsel of God in every aspect. But uh, if you're going to learn the Bible, sooner or later, you're going to have to get into passages that have some depth to them. Because, you know, if you stay away from them, then you really aren't going to learn the Bible at all because they are always key to putting all of the Bible together. So I want you to understand that today as we begin to uh, put this together. You remember that when I brought you through on Thursday night, uh, a while back we did what we call the seven pillars out of Proverbs chapter 9, seven foundational truths that the Bible's built on. And then again later after we did that, I came through the dispensations uh, and we laid uh, Proverbs chapter 8 out uh, in a very definitive way uh, under the doctrine of Christ. And today we're going we're gonna to begin to, over the next couple of weeks, break it down again for you. But today uh, I want I wanna, this to be an introduction. There are some things that I want you to understand uh, why this chapter is so important. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll look at this key doctrine in the Bible. But let's read Proverbs chapter 8. Uh, verse 22 through 31. Here's what it says. It says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was, I was brought forth. Was I brought forth? While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part 
of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the deep. When he established the clouds above. When he straightened the fountains of the deep. When he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment. When he appointed the foundations of the earth. Then I was by him as one brought up with him. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. Now, Father, help us today to uh, begin to break down this great passage by understanding some things that uh, go along with this that will help us put it into a better context. Uh, These are good people here today, Lord. They've come to hear the Word of God, and, and Lord, we pray that we'll teach and preach the Bible to them. Lord, we always want to make sure that on all levels we we cover and teach people the Bible, whether they're young Christians, medium Christians, or they're the old-time Christians that really have a handle on the Bible. We want to bridge to everybody what they need. But Lord, help us to realize and understand that if we're ever going to be effective for God, if we're ever going to do all that God wants us to do, then we're going to have to learn the Bible. It can't be the milk toast baby formula uh, all of our lives. We have to grow up and we have to take the Word of God. We have to get into the meat of the Bible and grow thereby. So help us today as we lay this out. Help me be clear in my presentation and help me to give them what uh, you would have me to give them today. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And shake we ask it. Amen. Now, at some point in your life, you're going to come through probably church history. We've taught it here many, 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 many times. And we know from Revelation chapter 3, uh, 1, 2, and 3, that the uh, church history, which spans approximately 2,000 years, we know that the Bible breaks it down into seven periods. And yet, most people don't know and understand that in each of those periods of time, I mean, there's a lot you could study in it, and I, I, I'm sure I have laid it out before, but, and we'll be through it, but in each of those periods of time, there was an issue that came up that the church had to deal with. There was an issue that came up of bad teaching or heresy, doctrinal impurity, that the, that the church had to face, deal with, and take a stand on. Now, we're in the last one today, Laodicea. And there's no question today to anybody who's got uh, any insight into what's going on today, our issue today that we face as Christians is simply this. I mean, I never would have thought that we'd have to face this, but this is what we face. We face today is, do we have the pure, true words of God in your lap this morning? That's the issue of the Laodicean church. The majority of people in this church period will tell you, yet you don't. And they'll want you to rely on them or their seminaries or their scholarship that they'll tell you what God says. We believe the Bible teaches and has always taught that God gave his revelation to you and me, the common man. I believe the Bible teaches and this church stands on the fact that that if you never got past the sixth grade, you can know God as great as anybody, any college professor out there because it's not about, it's not about your, your aptitude that develops your relationship with God, but rather your attitude toward the things of God. So that's our issue. In the Philadelphia church, which we know took place from around 1600 to 1900, that 300-year period there, the issue that came up with them was eternal security. Are you once truly saved? Can you lose your salvation? 
in the Sardis church period, which was coming up the last 500 years of the Dark Ages, uh, the, the issue that came up uh, was predestination. Did God choose some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell? And the church had to deal with that. In the Thyatira church period, which runs the first half of the Dark Ages, about 500 up to about 1,000, they had to deal with the aspect of the coming of Christ. Was it the amillennial approach or was it the postmillennial approach? And they had to struggle through that because that teaching began to come about around that time period and they lasted all through these church periods. In the Pergamos, which runs about 300 up to about 500 at the start of the Dark Ages, their issue was baptism for salvation. They had to struggle through and deal with that and take a stand on what the Bible taught versus what was coming out and what people were saying. Now, in the first two church periods, which would be Smyrna, and that's about uh, 33 A.D. to 100 A.D., and then the first one, Ephesus, they had two major doctrines that they had to deal with. They had to deal, first of all, in Smyrna with the resurrection of Christ. Did Christ really come out of that tomb? Because there was a lot of stuff circulating that he didn't, or he really didn't die. And of course, we know that the very salvation we hold dear today, and the very Bible, and the very crux of everything that Christianity is, comes back to that fact. If he didn't resurrect and come out of that tomb, we're wasting our time this morning. But then the early church, the first issue that came up... is the issue that we find in Proverbs chapter 8 that is, makes up for such a deep passage, and that is the deity of Christ. Was Jesus Christ very God? That was the issue. And the doctrine of Christ, the deity of Christ, was the first issue that came up when Christ came at the first coming of Christ. And today, as all of these move down through history, there, there are still many, many people who do not accept that. Uh, the issue of who Christ was as to his deity. Now, in the Bible, we've talked about this before, uh, Paul has given, uh, or the Holy Spirit of God has given seven mysteries to the church. And those seven mysteries are very key. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, that as pastors and teachers and leaders, we're to be stewards of that. We're to teach people that. And we do here. It's on the website. We've talked about it many, many times. <clears throat> I've taught it. I don't know how many times. I'm talking about it again today. But there's a lot of confusion today in Christianity. There's people who are messed up on major issues. And uh, there's people who are messed up on eternal security. They're, they're not sure that they can know for sure that they're saved. There's people out there running around <clears throat> marking everybody that's a leader in the world today and trying to I mean, make him the Antichrist and truly believe that the Antichrist has come. And we know that that's not true. There's people today that teach the, that there's no rapture of the church. And there's people today who are taking a stand against the nation of Israel. Do you know where all those things come from? All of those things come from pastors not being stewards of the mysteries of God because those seven mysteries will lay out and completely cover all of those major issues that the church is confused about. But in the Bible, one of those seven mysteries is the mystery called the mystery of godliness. And it deals with who Christ was and his deity. And it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, 
preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now this, this is a key verse in grasping the concept of who Christ was as to his deity. Now in a moment, I want to look at two key phrases here or two key words. But first, allow me to show you what the problem is here in a little more depth. Now, with the religious world today, there has always been a desire. We're going to look at some Bible scriptures here in a minute, so you may want to wet your fingers a little bit so you can turn your pages. Uh, There has always been a desire to make Christ a lesser God. In other words, not allowing him to be equal with God as part of the equal trinity. This heresy started around, actually started around the time of Christ's first coming. And the devil has always down through history and certainly started this in the early church of denying the deity of Christ that he was a lesser God. He was a a demagogue, as they say. They basically say that God someplace in the distant past created another God who was a lesser God than God himself, and that would be Jesus Christ. And that's what they teach. If you talk to a Mormon, a Mormon believes that. Jehovah Witnesses believe that. The Church of Christ believe that. Many major religions will put that in their creed, and they'll talk about Jesus Christ. And here's the thing that we want to talk about in a minute, Jesus Christ being a begotten God. Now, For me, all history is pretty simplified. We know it's a plan by the devil to dethrone Christ as God's son and to exalt himself. That was his original fundamental problem. If you have your Bible now, turn over to Isaiah chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, just listen to it. It's fine. No big deal. I'll read it for you. But here's where we see what the fundamental problem is. Now, this is... The Holy Spirit of God telling us what the devil said way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse someplace. He says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Here it comes. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, this is the number one problem that we have in the Bible with the devil. He wants to be God. So, therefore, consequently, all down through history, what he's tried to do through religion and through people is to take away the fact that Christ was very God because he wants to exalt himself as God. Now, obviously, this is why the Bible, this is why the, excuse me, this is why the devil hates the King James 1611 authorized version. He hates it because it's the only Bible on the planet that protects and honors and glorifies the deity of Christ. And he hates that. And uh, so that's what you're dealing with here. All the new Bibles will change it or take it out in some way or the other and deny the deity of Christ. Now, look at, uh, while you're right there, look at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Let me give you an example of this. Give you a couple of good examples here. Now, this is God talking to the devil. Look what he says. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, that was his name before he fell, son of the morning. Want to mark that phrase in your Bible, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations. 
Now that's the ref that's a reference to the devil being called the son of the morning. Now, if you have an NIV this morning, and I hope you don't, but if you do, that same verse says this. How art thou falling from heaven? And instead of saying son of the morning, it takes that out and puts O morning star. Now that may not seem like much to the average person. But when you go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 28, and Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, you'll find that the term morning star is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what that Bible did to the devil was take out the name that he had and then put in the name of Christ for the very devil destroying Christ's deity. And yet as I speak this morning... 99% 99% of the Baptist churches in this city, the pastors are standing in a pulpit telling you that the NIV is a more reliable, a better translation, and, and putting down the King James Bible, and, and all the time it takes away the deity of Christ and gives it to the devil. And uh, God's people go right along with it. In the Old Testament, when God gave the Jews the law, the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, number one was, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And you know what Israel did. Uh, they, they, they brought in Baal worship. They worshiped bulls. They worshiped the sun. They worshiped golden calves. They worshiped female deities. You name it. They all took something and took the place of God by getting rid of Christ and putting something that was likened to the devil in its place. Now, later on, when Christ comes at the first coming of Christ, most people don't, are not even aware of this, that the real issue that they had with Christ was over his deity. He claimed to be the son of God. Now, we use that phrase a lot. We talk about it a lot. Most people don't know what that that phrase means. And turn over to your Bible now in John chapter uh, in John chapter 1 verse 8 uh, John chapter 5 verse 18. John chapter 5, verse 18. Now, here is a definitive verse, and you want to mark this in your Bible. This is the definitive verse on the, on the term, the Son of God. This is why the Jews went ballistic every time Christ claimed to be the Son of God. Let me show you what it is. Verse 18. John chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had he broken the Sabbath... But said also, here it comes, that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The term of the Son of God in its final definition means that Jesus Christ is very God. And that's what they were upset about. This is the verse of reference that who he was and his deity. Now, when he goes to the Gentiles under Paul. And this is Paul's ministry from Acts chapter 13 up to the 20 and then on into the New Testament. We see the Gentiles doing the exact same thing. The devil has been at work all down through history trying to fundamentally dethrone Christ and make him a lesser God than very God himself. And uh, while Christ was about his earthly ministry, and you've heard me talk about this before, uh, down in Alexandria, Egypt, there already was a university that was well-founded and well-working. Uh, at, at that time of the first coming of Christ, and literally about 100 years before Christ showed up, Alexandria, Egypt, as far as the world was concerned, was the seat of knowledge. 
It was the, it was the, it was the uh, place where all knowledge uh, was relative from, and it was everything and recognized as everything. The, the great library of Alexandria uh, was on par to be one of the wonders of the world. It was incredible as far as the knowledge that they had amassed. They had amassed the knowledge of the Babylonians and the Hittites and all of the great empires that had come and gone. All was there in that great library at Alexandria. Well, when the Bible began to get circulated out and go into churches, just like if I was passing out Bibles to you, and it was the first Bibles anybody ever had, and we got millions of them, so we're throwing them out, giving them to everybody. In time, people got that Bible that did not believe God, did not believe the things of Christ, and that Bible made its way down to Alexandria, Egypt. There in that great bastion of theology, there were some men who did not believe that Jesus Christ was God. They didn't believe a lot of things that the Bible teaches. And they began to go through the Bible and change the Bible in over 60,000 places. They believed that uh, the Babylonians and the, and, the, and the Greek philosophers, they all believed that they all were uh, counterparts of Christianity. So they, where they didn't agree with the Bible, they changed the Bible to go along with it, and that became what, where our two lines of Bibles come from. And I'm not getting into a lesson on Manuscript Evans this morning. But at the end of the day, now you had two Greek texts. You had a Greek text that this one came from that was pure, that was protected by the church at Antioch and down through the line. And then you had the corrupt text that all the new Bibles come from. This is why, and I'm going to show you in a minute, this is why when you get into the new versions, they take away the deity of Christ, just like I showed you in the book of Isaiah. Because these men down in Alexandria, they believed that Jesus Christ was a begotten God. They did not believe he was the true son of God. They believed that he, God had created him way back in the back, way back in the past, and that he was, he was not equal with God, but a lesser God. And that's why, uh, that's where they took their position and that's why they changed it. Now, this is where we want to look at and understand from the Bible our two key words here. And this is going to help you. And as I said, this is all an introduction to you got to know this before we move into uh, next week and begin to take this passage apart. The first word is the word we're going to leave here today knowing what the Bible definition of the word begotten is. That's very important. The second phrase we're going to look at, or the term, is going to be uh, to come out of or to come forth, like we saw in Proverbs chapter 8. Now, the idea that Christ was a begotten God, as I said, comes from the inability to understand these two words and put them in a proper context within the Bible. Now, let me show you what I mean here. And you're going to find, as I said, many of the American cult groups, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the Church of Christ, they all take that position. Take your Bible and turn over to John, Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18. Let me show you another example here. Now, it says in John, chapter 1, verse 18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father... He hath declared him. Now that verse found in your King James Bible says that Jesus Christ was the only begotten son. That is the proper term, biblically. Now if you would have a 
New World Translation, which is the official Jehovah Witness Bible, that verse would say this, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God hath declared him. They take the begotten son out and make Jesus Christ the begotten God. You know why? Because that's what the boys down in Alexandria did, and that's where that Bible comes from. Now, if you had an NIV, the NIV takes out begotten completely out of the verse and makes some vague statement about God, uh, the one and only, whatever that is, and then puts a footnote at the bottom telling you that some of the later manuscripts have begotten God, have begotten son in it, but telling you that they're not reliable manuscripts. So you see that every new Bible will either leave it out, <coughs> change it, or completely in some way uh, bring it around that Christ was a begotten God. And the reason they do this is because those Bibles come out of Alexandria. Now, I'm not getting into this this morning, but this is why we only stay and preach and teach the King James Bible. This is why we do it. It's the only pure Bible out there. Now, let me show you another one. Look at 1 John. This will be at the end of your Bible, not the gospel. 1 John chapter 5. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 5. <clears throat> Pick it up in verse 5. It says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? There it is. This is he that came by water and blood. Even Jesus Christ, not by water only, that's his physical birth, but by blood. That's the fact that he was a sinless nature. He had God's blood in his vein. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. And is the spirit that bears witness because the spirit is true. Now here it comes. The greatest verse in the Bible on telling you that there is a trinity. Now watch. Next verse. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, that's the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Now that is the greatest verse in all the Bible that says Jesus Christ is God. These three are one. Now, in your NIV... The verse is completely changed, and it doesn't say that these three are one. It simply says that these three are in agreement. Well, that doesn't make much sense. Me and Zach are in agreement. Amen. Me and Will are in agreement. Amen. But we're not one. No, we're not. Shut up. <laughs> you just beat me to the punch of saying that. But it's, you see it, the problem. And again, the reason for that is that the translation of that text came from Alexandria, and they didn't believe that. They wanted to destroy the deity of Christ and who he really is. <clears throat> now, let me give you definitive verse on the word begotten, and you'll want to get this down if you're a Bible student. If you're not a Bible student, then don't worry about it. Just kind of nod off, and I'll be done here in a little bit. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 16. Let's take an easy one. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Only begotten Son. Notice it isn't a begotten God, it's his begotten Son. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Now, there's the definition of the word begotten uh, that, uh, that, that Christ was the, the begotten son. Now, the standard teaching is that some way, way back when, God decided to create another God that was going to be a lesser God that was not going to be equal with him. And that was Jesus Christ. So it comes out not begotten son, but begotten God. Now, let's find out where a, a real close definition of what begotten means. I'm going to show you. It has nothing to do with being back in someplace in eternity. Now, take your Bible and look at Acts chapter 13. And I know we're moving around here. This is probably more, t- more Bible movement than you've had in a long time in your life. But uh, Ben Gay, between your fingers, will help you tonight in, in the morning. <laughs> nothing like a Bible to clean up a seminary education. <clears throat> Now look at Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Now I'm going to show you. I talk about the Bible always interpreting itself. I'm going to show you how this works. Look at verse 33. God has fulfilled the same unto, their, uh, unto us, their children, in that he has, here it comes, raised up Jesus again, as it is written in the second Psalm, Psalm chapter 2, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now you want to mark this day. Look at, here we go again, Hebrews chapter 1, back a little bit farther. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, again, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now from the Bible itself, we now know that Christ was not begotten back somewhere in eternity. Now, how do we know that? Because he says, this day. In eternity, there was no time. There could be no day. So we know now that when we talk about Christ being begotten, it isn't in the distant past. It has to be somewhere after Genesis chapter 1, where time now is present. See how that Bible clears itself up? I mean, you have to just... Call God a liar to continue to hold to the teaching that he was begotten someplace in the past, in eternity past, when he clearly tells you in two places that it was a day. Amen. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you even closer. Let's stay right there in Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 5, and then we're going to read verse 6. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 6, and again, when he bringeth in his first begotten into the world. Then Christ was not begotten one second before the first coming of Christ when he was born in Matthew chapter 2 or 3 and in the book of Luke. The begotting of Christ as his son was in a day in time, and it was a time when he came into this world through Mary. And uh, the day he was begotten of God was the day God brought him into this world at the first coming of Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16, God manifested in the flesh. That's what it's a reference to. And uh, Christ was not begotten one minute, one second before he came into this world uh, born of a virgin, Mary. Now that's not all. Stay in Hebrews. Here's another great verse for you. Look at verse 8. But under the Son, Jesus Christ, he saith, Thy throne, O God. See that thing? 
That verse tells you that Jesus Christ was God. He's got a throne. He didn't say, thy throne, O begotten God. He said, he didn't say, thy throne, O begotten Son. There's a verse he's telling you that he was the begotten Son, but when he came into this world, but as far as God was concerned, he is God himself. Always was and always will be. Now, there's the cleanest, clearest verse in the Bible that Christ was God, declared by God himself. So from the Bible, when Christ was begotten, he was born into this world as the first man born of God. And, in the, and as the mystery of godliness tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that it's without controversy. Because when you get into the Bible and you stay with the Bible, there's no controversy to it. There's only a controversy when man wants to change the Bible, get out of the Bible, because he wants to teach something the Bible doesn't say. That's why we stick with the Bible here. It's just that simple. It is my opinion and your opinion. It isn't worth two hoots uh, in the wind. All that matters here is what saith the Scriptures. That's all that matters. And we don't interpret the Bible. We'll let the Bible interpret itself. I'm not going to get up there and tell you what my opinion is on, on his being begotten. I'm going to take you and show you how the Bible defined it. I'm not going to get up and say, well, I think the means the Son of God means this. I'm going to take you to the Bible and show you what the Son of God term means. That's the way we operate. And this mystery of godliness to the church is Christ being manifested in the flesh and begotten of God as the Son of God who is the visible appearance of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Christ was the express person of his image. Simply God coming down to man in the form of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Most people don't even know this. When you lay out the three names of Christ, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all very significant. The word, first word, Lord, that's his deity. That means he's God. That's the word for God. He's the Lord. He's God. Then Jesus was the earthly man that was born, the manifestation of that. And then Christ is his is Christos, or the anointed one, for the job that God had in him to do. So in his title and his name, it's the Lord, God Almighty, Jesus, the God-man who was manifested in the flesh, Christ, Christos, the anointed one to fulfill God's plan that God had for him to fulfill. It, it's real simple when you just put it to the Bible. Now, the second term I want you to see and understand is found in Proverbs chapter 8 uh, in here, and we'll talk about this in verse 24. And this is where uh, he says, uh, when there was no depth, I was brought forth. And I want to talk to you about the difference between being begotten and being brought forth. We now know that begotten is, is the first coming of Christ. But let's get all this together, and it's, it's quite remarkable. God obviously had a plan. We know that. And man is part of that plan. I've laid it out many, many times that God wanted to use the nation of Israel in the Old Testament under the guidelines of the kingdom of heaven. He wants to use the church in the New Testament under the guidelines of the kingdom of God. We, we know that. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. John chapter 4 verse 24 says that gee, God is a spirit. You can't see God. God's invisible. So how does God communicate with man? How does God have fellowship with man? How does God come down and, and partake of anything with man if God is a spirit? I mean, uh, would, you go to a, would you go to a place when you walked into a house and, uh, and all you suddenly heard this big booming voice talking to you? You'd be out of there so fast you would. He had to identify with man. He had to identify with man because God is a spirit. He's invisible. 
So to have any kind of relationship with man, God had to manifest himself somehow. So back in eternity, at some point, and I don't know where, Bible doesn't say where for sure, God manifested out of himself a visible image of his invisible person. And he stepped out of the Godhead and manifested himself as the Son of God. Now, he did this term Son of God for a number of reasons. Because when you lay it all out, and we don't have time to get into it this morning, he was showing the model of an obedience for a child to their parents, or for me as a Christian to my Heavenly Father. So he took on the form of a man, even though he was very God, and he, he made himself obedient to himself as a model. Now, most human beings have a really tough time grabbing that. See, they don't get it. And they'll scratch their head and say, well, I don't understand. Well, let me tell you something. If I understood everything on a level that God did, we wouldn't need God. I don't understand how a brown cow can eat green grass and give white milk, but he does. (laughs) There are certain things that God, who can do whatever he wants to do, that he does, and the fact that I don't understand it doesn't mean that it isn't true. But you find a lot of people like that. If they can't figure it out, then it it can't be true. And there's a lot of things, obviously, in life that you can't figure out that are not true. But when it comes to dealing with God, let me tell you something. He stepped out of that Godhead, and this is what Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31 is talking about. He stepped out of that Godhead, and he manifested himself so that he could have some kind of identifiable relationship with man. And then God made him the mediator between me and God himself. The God-man. God manifested in the flesh. Turn over to John chapter 17. I'll show you Jesus talking to his father and and saying this exact same thing to, to us that I'm saying to you this morning. John chapter 17, a great verse. John chapter 17, verse 8. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. This is Jesus speaking to his father. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. And they have received them. Here it comes. And have known surely, here it comes, that I came out of thee. Now that's a reference to Proverbs chapter 8. Exactly what we're talking about. And they have believed that thou dost send me. Now that verse says that when you get into the Word of God and become a Bible student, not somebody who just fools around with the milk of the Word, but shall you get into the Bible and learn the Bible, and you receive it as the Word of God, then you'll get this mystery of God being manifested in the flesh from the words of God that He came out of His Father. Now in the Old Testament, in the kingdom of heaven, He manifests Himself as the angel of the Lord. You'll find it in Galatians, a reference to it in Galatians chapter 4, verse 14. Numerous places in the Old Testament where Christ is showing up in some kind of bodily manifestation. Not as the Son of God, but most of the time as the angel of the Lord, or commonly called the captain of the Lord host. I don't know what kind of body he had. I'm not sure what he looked like. I would say that he probably looked just like Christ when he showed up the first time because nobody would have known what the other Christ down the line was going to look like. But he didn't manifest. This is my point. He did not manifest himself in the Old Testament as the Son of God. 
he manifested himself as the angel of the Lord to Israel. Because Israel needed a visible relationship with God. And God's invisible. So in the Old Testament, he chose to do it through Christ as the angel of the Lord. But when the church age comes, the New Testament, he has to be, he now comes in the physical form of the Son of God. Because now we're going to go into the church age. Now we're going to go into the spiritual kingdom of God. Now some things are going to change. Christ is going to go back to heaven and sit at the right hand of God the Father. But he needs to leave a bodily presence here. So he establishes what the Bible calls the church, which another name for the church is simply what? The body of Christ. And now Christ dwells in the church inside believers and the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, that behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And it says, now are we the sons of God. Amen. See, he's manifesting himself through us. You are, boy, you ever grasp this, it'll help you clean up your life. You are the visible appearance of an invisible God to the people you work with, right. to the people in your family, to your neighbors, to everybody around you. They don't know God. They know nothing about God. If God came down and knocked on their door with a big booming voice and it was invisible, they'd be calling the police and everybody else. So how did God decide to do it? God said, you know what I'll do? I'll manifest myself in that person who becomes a Christian and they become the visible appearance of the invisible God. That changed your perspective on your lawless lifestyle a little bit, doesn't it? Probably not, but good preaching. So at the first coming of Christ, he's coming into the world, begotten this day as the Son of God, with the purpose of indwelling believers, you and me, having fellowship and a relationship with us through his word. And through being us now, being born again, now we become begotten of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul speaking here. He says, for lo, ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. Here it comes. For in Christ Jesus have I begotten you through the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ was the first man born of God, begotten of God. But once he came to this earth, manifested himself, was begotten of God, then you and I, when we get saved, become the begotten of God. Look over in, uh, in, in Philipp, uh, Philemon chapter 1, verse 10. Philemon. It says, I beseech ye for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Then Paul uses the word begotten when he wins somebody to Christ. Because he knew that when Christ came down and was begotten son of God, when he died on the cross, and Paul got saved, or you got saved, then you and I became the begotten Son of God. We're not the first begotten. We were, we're not the only begotten in the sense of Christ, but we're in the series of Christ dying. He's called the first begotten of the dead, Jesus Christ is. You know why? Because he's the first man begotten of God, born of God, that'll never die. I'm second. Not sure where you're at. But that's what he's talking about. Now, that will be invaluable to you 
as you move up the levels of learning the Bible, if you ever decide you really want to learn the Bible, understanding the concept of Christ being begotten as the Son of God, equal with God, uh, never, never, never being a begotten God. And yet, I, I told you a minute ago that there's so many models here. Christ coming at the first coming of Christ sets up so many models. And uh, uh, they're, they're models that you can, you can take and study each one of them. I have a model from Christ of, of, a, of, of what uh, I had a love in life because the Bible talks about the things that Christ loves and the things that he hates. I have a model in Christ of where I had to go and who I had to hang out with. I have a model in Christ of how I need to react and respond to circumstances in life. All kinds of models. I have a model in Christ of what my relationship should be with God in a father-son relationship through obedience. Great model. But also we have the model of evangelism. The model of evangelism. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about penetrating cultures. How that every culture out there is different. And that if you're going to win men and women to Christ, you've got to, one, understand their culture, two, understand how to penetrate their culture, and then get in there and do with them and reach them with the gospel. It's that simple. It's that simple. And that's exactly what Christ did. That's exactly what God did. Uh, here's another verse. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, 7, and 8. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. See that thing? He's equal with God, and he thought it not robbery. He came in the form of God, the Son of God, but he was equal with God. You got to see that in that verse. But made himself, here it comes, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. Now, the great model for evangelism is real simple here. It's God who had Christ sitting with him on the throne. He was the aristocracy of heaven. The Bible says he was the apple of God's eye. But God knew that you and I was lost without hope and without Christ. God knew that he had to do something for you and for me. He had to come down and eradicate what we could not eradicate ourselves, our sin. So the Bible says that God manifested himself in the New Testament as the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Christ did, remember now, he had always been with God. Proverbs chapter 8. He came out way back when. We'll see it next week. I don't know when he came out, but he'd been around for a while when he manifested himself out of there, and he was with God, equal with God. He was the apple of God's eye. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And then what happened? To reach you and me, Jesus Christ had to leave the splendor of glory. Amen. He had to leave the reputation of being God. Amen. Yes, he, did. he had to come down and take on the form of a servant where everybody up in heaven was bowing down to him and catering to him because he was God Almighty. Now he bowed down and he washed people's feet. Thank you, Lord. He healed the lepers. He went where the sick was. He did what, what needed to be done. 
He left the culture of heaven. He left the splendor of heaven. He left the glory of heaven. What a change that must have been for him. From walking to the streets of gold to the dusty, muddy, dirt streets of Palestine. From people who were praising him, giving the adoration as the Son of God, to people who came down and were spitting in his face, pulling out his beard, laughing at him, making fun of him, denying everything he was. But you know what? At any click of the fingers, at any blink of the eye, he could have wiped out the whole planet and said, I'm here and I'm king. But he didn't. You know why? Because he had a plan. And that plan was you and me. And if he would have never penetrated my culture, I would have never gotten saved. And if he would have never penetrated your culture, you would have never gotten saved. But I'm, no, no, no. You're shaking your head and laughing and smiling and saying amen. I just comes a sucker punch. Why then will you not transcend your culture and give what he gave to you to somebody else? See, that's a sucker punch. That's, that's sparring a little bit, you know. And then you get, you say, oh, he don't hit too hard. And wham. That's what we do here. That's the job of the church. It's us not having the glory here. Not having everything that we have here. It's not putting the emphasis on life here for what we want and what we have. No, no. It's about taking and seeing and understanding all that we have that God has given us and then taking it and transcending into other people's cultures. Leaving who we are. Putting it aside. Even though we may be the son of God and the aristocracy of heaven, we do what he did. We take on the form of of a servant. I, I use, we do it all the time, but I, I, you, I will use this as an illustration because it's so, uh, it's so prominent in, in what we do, especially what we're doing today. But I, I, I look at that uh, in, in what we're doing at Restart today. And it's a thing where that's another culture down there. And most people look at it and they get say, oh, yucky, I don't want to get in that. It's real filthy down there. It's real dirty down there. Going out in the street and hot and giving all these people. And, you know, they want to come up and hug you. They want to come up and shake your hand. And I don't have enough, I don't have enough hand cleaner to take it. You know, you don't know where they've been and what they've done and all of those things. And I get all that. I get all that. I really do. But I got to say something to you. What would we be if God looked at us before he came down and said the same exact thing? And, you know, he could have. Because he was holy, and there wasn't anything holy about anybody down here. He was clean, and we all were unclean. And he could have just as easily said, I ain't getting down there and all of that. Well, I got this white robe on up here. I ain't going to soil that. Man, I can't get, they don't even have hand cleaner yet. I can't go down there. Your job and my job right now, no matter what we do, but our job as a church is to, is to go where the culture needs to be penetrated. Unfortunately, it's a, it, it, God just doesn't want to save rich people. God doesn't want to save clean people. God doesn't want to just save people who don't have any infirmities or don't have any problems. It would be nice if that's the way it was, but that's not the way it is. When he came down and he took a look at you and me the first time, I'm sure he wanted to gag. I'm sure he probably felt on the human side exactly what so many of God's people feel when they see an opportunity and it just doesn't match up to their, where they think it ought to be. On, but oh, I thank God that in spite of that, he came down to me. 
And that's the motivating factor. I can't speak for you this morning, but that is the motivating factor for me. That is what sends me where most people are unsendable. That is what sends me where most people are unsendable. Because I fully understand where I was, and he came down to me. And I realized that he left the splendor of heaven and transcended my culture for me to get saved. And so my job now, your job too, but I'm not speaking to you, I'm speaking to me. My job now is to simply transcend cultures. Be that witness that will tell them about God, a God that loves them, a God that died for them. And that's why he's living inside you. That's why Christ went back to heaven. That's why God just didn't continue him on after the resurrection and let him stay down here and do what he did. He was the first begotten. He was the only begotten. But after he got went back to heaven and he started the church age, now you and I are the begotten son of God. He expected you and me to do and carry on what he started by giving us the model. He left the splendor of heaven. You and I leave the splendor of our homes. Christ, the only begotten Son. Then because of Him, we can be begotten of God, born into the, by the Spirit, by a new birth. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And we'll leave it here. Next week we'll get into this and we'll really begin to break it down now that we've got some things to find. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, He says, begotten us again because man was once alive in Adam. But Adam sinned, and the Bible says that death passed upon all men, that all men now are sinners. So when Christ came down as the only begotten Son of God, and now we know that He was not begotten one second before the first coming of Christ when He came into this world, manifested as the visible appearance of the invisible God. He came down with a purpose to die for the sins of the world, go back to heaven, and to finish His plan, give us the ability to be a begotten Son of God through salvation. Trusting Christ as your own personal Savior. And that's what he's done. All right, next week we'll break down Proverbs chapter 8. I'd like to have every head bowed, every eye closed here for just a second. But now next week you'll see how much easier it will be now that we have this introduction.